as we come now before the very Word of God, will be in Genesis chapter 9 again this morning. This is from Genesis 9. This will finish out the chapter for us. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword to to pierce through our very soul and spirit, to divide the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts so that all are naked and exposed before you. Lord, would you pierce us now with your word, not as a way to wound us, but with the good and careful hand of a surgeon. Lord, that you would show us ourselves to humble us and show us yourself to make us thankful. By your Spirit, would you guide us now? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 18 and take up the verses that carry through the end of the chapter. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these all the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of God. Now, today we'll be addressing the subject of generational curse. Generational curse. So as this section of scripture around Noah comes to a close... We see in here another recurring theme that seems to repeat over the course of the scriptures, that there's a tilt that happens from blessing to curse. This occasion with Noah now reiterates the situation again with Adam and Eve. So after the ark, the Lord blesses Noah and his family. 
He reaffirms his covenant with man, and he calls man to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with abundance. This is a time of hope and promise and peace with God. But it's not long before the corruption of sin again rears its ugly head. And while there's an element of blessing still remaining in some sense, that blessing is now interwoven with curse. So today we'll be asking about this general curse with two questions. One, what happened here? And two, what happens now? What happened here and what happens now? Before we begin to try to answer those questions even, let me uh, first acknowledge a couple of things. Two things, one of them easy and one of them not so easy. I'll do the easy one first because, well, it's easy. The easy part is there's, uh, but that needs acknowledging, is there's a major figure in this account named Ham. And to us, at least to me, it sounds like Noah named his kid after a lunch meat. Uh, because, well, I speak English and not Hebrew, as Noah did. And if the name Ham is distracting or gives you the giggles, just go ahead and get them out now. Ham, 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 Ham. There's a guy named Ham. All right, good. That's the easy part. Now we can move past that. The not-so-easy part is that there are some sensitive subjects around this account of a sexual nature. I don't want to downplay that or skirt around that or do the reverse of it and and use things like this to shock us. I'm going to try, with the Lord's help, to wisely handle these things with care. We know that critics of the Bible are often quick to point out all the bad things that happen in the scriptures. You know, and, and we don't have to deny or, or feel like we have to hide the bad things that happen in the Bible, nor do we think that because something happens in the Bible, that means that God condones or approves of all of those things. We know that the Word of God is a real reflection of life as the way it is, not life as the way it ought to be or as the way we wish it were. Which means that the Bible sometimes shows some pretty ugly things. And I want to make you aware of that now, because we'll try to address those things. There we go. Now we come to our questions. First, what happened here? That is, what is it that brought Noah to curse part of his own family. We tend to think of Noah as a sailor or as a zookeeper because of his famous time on the ark. But a far larger portion of his life after the ark, Noah is a farmer. He's described here as a man of the soil. 
And, and some of the first things he does now is, is to plant a garden, a vineyard for wine. And one day, he has too much of that wine, gets drunk and naked, and passes out. Now, the scripture does not say that wine or any other form of strong drink by itself is a good or bad thing. Only that there are good or bad uses of wine. But the scripture does consistently tell us that excessive drinking of wine, to the, especially to the point of getting drunk, that is bad. That's a sinful use of wine. There's clearly spoken in Ephesians, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine for that is debauchery. But just as a wine by itself is not good or bad, so also nakedness by itself is neither good nor bad. You know, Adam and Eve walked naked in the garden without any need for shame. Job talks and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. And uh, Isaiah was told by God to prophesy publicly naked for three years. There can be a moral innocence to nudity, but that's not the case here with Noah. The text talks about his nakedness, but the word isn't just referring to the fact that he has no clothes on. This is a unique word that carries a sense of shame with the nakedness. Which means this incident, where Noah gets drunk and naked in his tent, that's not just the end of a fun time. It's not just the end of a crazy day. This is not just a no big deal moment. The situation for Noah is sin. It is shameful. It is something that should call for repentance in him and a need for grace. That said, it is important for us to see this. That even though what Noah does is wrong... The culpability for what happens next is not on Noah. The focus of what happens and the cause of the curse that we'll address, the focus is not on the sin of Noah, it's on the sin of Ham. So the text doesn't say, well, if Noah hadn't gotten drunk and naked in the first place and put himself in a bad and vulnerable position, then the rest of this mess wouldn't have happened. So it's really Noah's fault to begin with. Some people think that about various situations, even about modern situations, especially about situations with women who might have gotten drunk and have bad things happen to them. Some people think that. They blame them for them, their circumstances. Some people who do these things perhaps even blame themselves for that, but the Bible doesn't do that. Noah is responsible for the sins done by him, yes. But he is not responsible for the sins done to him. I want us to get that distinction. After Noah realizes the sins done to him, 
This is when, toward the end of our text, that Noah opens his mouth and speaks the only words that we hear Noah say in the entire Bible. In these last verses where he speaks a curse upon one line of his descendants. Here, Noah is not being irrational. He's not overreacting, nor is he trying to distract from his own faults or flaws. This curse is spoken by Noah, but the curse is enacted by God. That is, a millennia after this curse is spoken. As God is leading his people out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan, all the Canaanites who live in the land of Canaan already, all the tribes of the Jebusites and Amorites and Hebrites and all the other ites, all of those from this cursed line of Ham, all of these people are handed over by God as part of this curse. So we can trace all the wars between Israel and Canaan back to this one incident with this one curse. So what happened here? What was Ham's sin against his father Noah? Let's look. The text says in verse 22 this, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. That's the only thing that the text explicitly tells us that Ham does. That in contrast to his other two brothers who cover their father's nakedness so that they won't see it, Ham sees his father's nakedness. So the sin of Ham that brings the curse is at least this. The sin is of dishonoring his father. He dishonored his father. He broke the fifth commandment to honor his father and mother. Which means that this isn't just he caught an accidental glimpse of Noah's shameful moment. This is not one of those situations like when you open the bathroom door and go, oops, I didn't know you were in here. Sorry, you should really lock that. Uh, That's not what's happening here. He sees Noah's drunken nakedness. And not only does Ham not help him, not cover him, that would be the honorable thing, but he also goes and tells his brothers as a sort of ridicule, like, hey, guess what dad's up to in the tent? Now, It might seem, at least to some people, and also to me, that there is a glaring imbalance here. Does it feel that way? A glaring imbalance here. Ham dishonors his father. And as a result, there's a generational curse of servitude that lasts for centuries. How is that right? I mean, we could say our sense of that imbalance at least partly comes from the fact that we live in a culture that devalues honor of father and mother. So we brush off the sinfulness of dishonor. It's not that big of a deal, but they view it much more seriously than we do. But I'd say even for them, there's part of this account that doesn't quite add up 
that calls for us to dig into the text a bit deeper, because we might wonder if there might be more than only dishonor here. And many faithful scholars throughout the ages have looked at this scene in Genesis and noticed that there seems to be more here than first meets the eye. That the author is very cleverly veiling and unveiling what happened to Noah. I need to be clear. We're delving now into some interpretive theories. We'll do the best that we can. None of these theories is airtight, so I want to walk with caution and admit that we cannot be entirely sure about any of these. But this is where we enter into the not-so-easy part that I mentioned at the beginning. I'll try to be honest and sensitive to these delicate matters as I give us three of the most common interpretations of Ham's sin against Noah. I'm going to order these three in order from what I think is the least plausible, the least likely of what happened, to the most plausible at the end. The first possibility of Ham's sin is that there was a sin of castration. That Ham not only looked upon his father's nakedness, but took part of his father's nakedness. This view, at least as I see it, has the the least amount of credibility from the text. I don't see evidence for that within the scripture, but I mention this view because this was the view and teaching of several uh, ancient Jewish rabbis in what was called the Jewish Midrash. And it's possible that these old rabbis had the benefit of some cultural context that I just can't quite see. So it is worth mentioning. But I think it's the least likely of the three. The second, the next interpretation has a much stronger basis in the text. And it's the heaviest of the three. The second possibility is that the sin of Ham was the sin of sodomy and rape. The phrase, to uncover nakedness, or to see nakedness, is used dozens of times in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. And each time those phrases are used, it is not just referring to a mere lack of clothing. It's a euphemism for a sexual action. And in the context of Leviticus, there's, there's whole lists of various types of sexual actions that the Lord there refers to as abominations. Engaging in same-sex action is one of those abominations, an action that is consistently forbidden in the pages of Scripture as sin. And if that is what is meant here, That means that Ham engaged in sodomy, or a same-sex sexual encounter with his own father, father. and to add sin to sin, he did so while Noah was drunk and unaware, which makes it rape. 
I hope that was not the case. That was not what occurred. If so, that's truly perverse. And we don't need to linger much more upon it than we've already done, but I will say that if this happened, that might better explain why after Noah awakes, Noah knows that something has been done to him, not just that someone looked at him. It might also explain why Noah reacts so swiftly and strongly with a curse. That's the second possibility. The third and final interpretation is where I cautiously hang my own hat in what I think happened. The third possibility of the sin of Ham is that this is the sin of of adultery and incest. That is, that while Noah was passed out drunk, Ham, his son, has a sexual interaction not with his father Noah, but with his mother, Noah's wife. In Leviticus, we hear the words, your father's nakedness is the nakedness of your father's wife. It's said in different ways, various places. In Deuteronomy, there's a nice, well, maybe not nice, a tidy summary in chapter 27 in a list of curses, verse 20, we hear this, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say amen. If this is what occurred, if Ham had an illicit sexual interaction with his mother, that could explain both Noah's strong reaction to Ham's sin, but it might also explain what is the most puzzling part about this entire account. This is perhaps something you've been wondering about for a good bit during this sermon already now, too. You might have noticed that Ham is the one who sins against Noah. But Noah then doesn't pronounce the curse upon, Saint, uh, upon Ham. Did you see that? Who is it that Noah curses? It's in verse 26. Note verse 25. Cursed be Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, not Ham. Cursed be the son of Ham. A few verses later then, into chapter 10, we hear that Ham didn't just have one son, he had four. Cush, Egypt, Put, and and Canaan. And yet of the four, only one of those children is cursed for the sin of Ham, the one son Canaan. And it may be that the reason for that is because Canaan is Ham's son not by his own wife, but with his father's wife. That is, that Canaan is a child born out of adultery and incest. Is that what really happened? 
I have to confess that I don't really know for sure. The text isn't entirely clear. It is covert on these things. What we do know for sure is this. Ham sinned against his father Noah in some way so reprehensible that that sin warranted a curse upon one of his sons and for many generations after. That's what happened here. We get a generational curse out of this. So now, question two, what happens now? Not just what happened after this, what happens now, today? Do things like this still occur? And the short answer is yes. Yes, they do. Generational curses still occur. And generational curses and all the events around them, their very existence dismantled dismantle some of our flawed notions about individualism. So we live in a culture, even amongst Christians, where we assume the idea that my life is mainly a product of my choices and my actions. That is, if I'm lifted up high as a master of large tents and lands, it must be because I worked hard for that. And on the flip side, if I am brought lower than a servant, it must be because I failed. I'm lazy. I'm wrong. Now, it's not that my own choices and my actions don't matter at all for me. Of course, we know that they do. But we generally don't even consider the impact for blessing or for curse that there may be a generation or two or more before me that I am now the recipient of. Texts like this one rub many people the wrong way, at least here in the U.S., because Canaan, the son of Ham, did nothing wrong. His dad did. Why should Canaan have to pay the price for whatever Ham did? That's not right. That's not just, some people would say, listen, God will always do right. God will always do justly because he is justice. And his general principle of justice toward man is that each of us individually does does bear responsibility for ourselves, for things that we've done and left undone. And yet, we are not just individual ice cubes in tidally divided trays. We are much more like boats upon a common sea. And everything that we do sends ripples that rock the other boats around us. All of our actions not only affect people around us, they also affect people after us. The reality is then, you may be the source of a generational curse.
your actions, something you do, even perhaps something as seemingly harmless as dishonor of your father, may bring a generational curse to those after you. Doesn't that bring you to pause for a moment? Take stock of the actions you've done or about to do. Maybe seek repentance, restoration while we still can, wherever we're able. It's also true, you you may not only be the source of a generational curse, you might be the recipient of a generational curse. The generational handing down of certain relational frameworks of certain inborn temptations to particular sins, perhaps parts of your financial position. These are all at least partly influenced by your fathers before you. This is not to bring us to bitterness. It's not to bring us to blame. There's no excuse here to respond with sin to other sin. It's just the reality that we live in. It's not only possible that you're the recipient of a generational curse, you are. I know you are. We are all recipients of at least one generational curse. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, dishonored the father, bit the forbidden fruit, and it wasn't just personal repercussions for themselves. It plunged all of mankind, all of us, all of you, under the curse of sin and death. Generational curses are very real right now. And this should wreck our sense of individualism. It should, but listen, it should not wreck our sense of hope. There are absolutely things that happen here whatever it was that happened, absolutely things that happen here that we wish didn't happen. Maybe there are even parts of what I've mentioned today that you have personal experience with. Maybe you have personal knowledge of some pretty radical, damaging family dynamics some particular sexual sin or dysfunction or abuse, some experience with children conceived outside of the covenant of marriage, perhaps some experience with alcohol abuse or even rape. If you've had some interaction with that, you know the hurt that causes. And you might be at a loss to know what, if anything, you're even able to do about it. You know, there, there might even be times when you wish you just had a chance to just reset the whole thing, to wipe it out and want to do it over again. And, and I imagine if God gave Noah that opportunity, if God handed Noah a giant red reset button and said, you can rewind this day and have a better go at it if you just press that button. I bet Noah would have hit that button in a heartbeat. 
boop, reset for sure. But God doesn't give us reset buttons. We'd end up wiping out our lives, having to press it over and over and over and over again. God doesn't give us reset buttons, but he gives us something far better. God gives us his own son. And this account with Noah, just like every other account really in the Bible, is leading us to long for Jesus. To see our need for Jesus. To look for Jesus. We know then that when Jesus came, he became accursed for our sake to redeem us, to free us from the curse of sin, not just for one generation or two or for ten, but for a thousand generations into all eternity for everyone who would believe in him. So, so, so whatever happens, we are not doomed to despair, and we do not lose hope, but we set our hope on Jesus, who will never, ever fail. Pray with me. Lord, would you help us from here to be to be sober-minded, to be drawn to pursue holy living, not to to be content to live in our own sinful passions. Lord, we do this not out of our own power, but because the grace that you have brought to us at the revealing of Jesus. Lord, whatever may come, would you abide in us forever as our everlasting hope. We ask this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.